Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast today on the pod. What's in a name? Alberta requires parental consent for pronoun changes. Is it common sense policy or putting vulnerable children at risk? Plus, failed promise as lower mainland police forces move towards wearing body cameras. We look at whether cameras work for police forces in the United States. And Better Call Saul ends a successful six-year TV run without winning an Emmy. Why, after 53 nominations, does a program end up the Susan Lucci of television shows? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Federal ministers are voicing strong opposition to Alberta Premier Daniel Smith's proposed restrictions on transgender rights, arguing it'll put youth at risk with one of the most aggressive policies of its kind uh, in Canada. Federal Health Minister Mark Collins says he is deeply disturbed by the provincial plan that was announced by Ms. Smith yesterday. The proposals first announced on the social media site X involve transgender policies and guidelines ranging from restrictions on hormone therapy and surgery to participation in sport. Smith uh, spoke to news organizations earlier Earlier today, uh, talking specifically about the fact that she is confident Albertans do not want children to make irreversible decisions. Take a listen. I am confident that Albertans do not want children to make irreversible decisions that impact their reproductive health. I am confident that they do not think that those are child decisions to make, that those are adult decisions to make. I am also confident that parents love their kids and they want to know what's going on with their kids. doesn't matter what perspective they come from. They want to make sure that uh, they're walking the journey with their child every step of the way. And anyone who's trying to put roadblocks in that child-parent relationship, they've got to, I, I don't think they have public support. I mean, that said, we, we do know that there are going to be difficult conversations to be had. That's why we are going to be supporting a pilot project to ensure that families are able to have counseling right alongside with the kids. And if there is ever an instance where a child feels rejected or, or at risk of harm, we have a child protection service, and we are going to make sure that those kids also have a safe environment to be in. So I, w- I would say that this is the right balance. This is what I believe Albertans expect of us to do to make sure that we're protecting kids' choices. Now, Alberta's official opposition NDP and former Premier leader and Rachel Notley uh, says that the Premier's comments and her government's uh, policies are putting vulnerable children at risk. Take a listen. Listening to Danielle Smith's message, some might have heard a calm delivery, but the words themselves were cynical and cruel. Now, while we anticipated that the UCP would bring forward policies and guidelines similar to those in New Brunswick or Saskatchewan, Danielle Smith's UCP went well beyond those initiatives, expanding her attack to include the whole 2SLGBTQ plus community as well as any child at all, quite frankly, who benefits from a sex education. The decisions made by Danielle Smith and her government are designed to further divide those who have been subjected to misinformation and conspiracy theories generated by a wing of the United Conservative Party. When it comes to gender-affirming health care, Smith's new policy represents government interference in what should be 
a collaborative and private decision between parents, their child, Danielle Smith and her cabinet are quite honestly the last people who should be inserting themselves into people's lives this way. So very strong uh, uh, comments there from the opposition leader in Alberta. Many have said uh, that could we see something like that here in British Columbia? I don't think the NDP is heading in that direction here provincially. But, um, you know, this is a conversation that isn't just an Alberta conversation, but a national one. It's been discussed as well in other prairie provinces as well. Now, I just want to clarify a couple of things. For those aged 15 and under, in regards to the Alberta policy, for those aged 15 and under, parents will be notified uh, and will be required to give consent to their children, child's new name or pronoun. Uh, for those aged 16 or 17, parents will be notified but will not be required to give consent in regards to children uh, and pronouns. Now, one of the major objections to that is is that they, this would out children who are comfortably expressing their identity at schools but may feel unsafe at home. Now, in Saskatchewan, uh, the court of the King's Bench issued a temporary injunction against a school policy saying it may cause irreparable harm, but the Premier Scott Moat and his Conservative government invoked the notwithstanding uh, clause. There's also... Uh, new rules around sex education, sexual education, or any formal discussion of human sexuality or gender identity will also be limited under the new policy measure. Schools will need to notify parents and received an opt-in requirement every single time there is a formal lesson on human sexuality, gender identity, or sexual orientation and about transgendered people in sports. Uh, She says it's emerging issues and issue and it's divisive. Uh, So as a result, her government will explore female-only sports leagues and with the possibility of transgender youth getting to participate in co-ed leagues. Uh, There's a lot more here. Joining me now is our show contributor, Jerry Mayer Judson. We talked a little bit about this yesterday, just as news broke. Wanted to talk to you a little bit more about this. I know you have a a feature for us at 4 o'clock. Your thoughts on this after, you know, 24 hours of sort of, uh, you know, trying to, I guess, understand (laughs) all of it. And I think the whole country uh, in regards to this, uh, it's a bigger, wider conversation. Your thoughts? I think that... Premier Smith needs to, instead of just making announcements on on X, formerly known as Twitter, she needs to put pen to paper a little bit and kind of give us like the formal regulations. Is it are there going to be? Are you going to write it down? Are there going to be actual regulations? Is there going to be a bill? Is it going to be something so that I don't know people can legally prepare themselves perhaps to to see what kind of challenges need to be made? Because right now she is kind of just saying words, and in her media availability today, I didn't really get any sense of how. She she is moving forward with this. So I'm confused and frightened, I guess, as, as a, which seems to be kind of the sentiment of a lot of my friends and folks back home. Just they, we don't know what's happening, but there's been a good outpouring of support um, for, you know, people saying, well, to us LGBTQ plus community, mm-hmm. we know you're scared. We know that this is a lot and um, we're here for you. So I guess that's been nice. Now, Alberta will also ban puberty blockers and hormone therapy for youth under the age of 16. Uh, it'll ban all all top and bottom surgeries for those under the age of 18. Now, some people are going to say, wait a minute here. Uh, the premier and her government through the legislation has a point. Young people should not be making these irreversible uh, changes, as the Premier said, on that issue. Can I cut in with something, yeah, though? Is I think in. that uh, puberty is also an irreversible change that happens to your body. If you go through one puberty that does not align with the gender that you feel, then you have to undo that later in your life. So I don't understand. I think it's a false equivalency because she's saying, well, you have to opt into this decision, that it is somehow worse than going through the puberty that your body decides that it is going to go through. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think... 
I, I just, I don't, I don't like that sort of argument myself. Now let's go back to the issue of pronouns. And you and I disagreed on this yesterday. I'm, I am really trying to understand. I think you didn't realize I'm trying to understand this, but as a parent, I still would want to be notified mm-hmm. if my, my child, um, wants to change a name or pronoun. Uh, and I get where you're coming from in the sense and where the premier is coming from in regards to parents' rights. I understand there's going to be a, probably a small minority of parents that do not handle that news very well. Totally. They may not treat their children well. Mm-hmm. So do we focus on that small minority, but you exclude the majority, I think, of parents who will say, I love my kid. We'll get this to together. I want to provide the support. I should still know. I think these might be the kinds of parents that would sort of know anyways, or maybe you do make an environment where your child feels comfortable to tell you about that anyways, and maybe that you're making, you're taking pains so they feel safe at home, mm-hmm. um, which that is, that's excellent and amazing. And then, you know, then I guess it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter too much because you'd already kind of be in the loop. I don't think that a parent necessarily is going to know every single thing that's going on with their kid at school, like even through the best of intentions, even though you want to, because children, I mean, youths, minors, they sort of have private lives regardless of what, unless you can like being John Malkovich inside their brain and look through their eyes and see what they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that I'm not pro hiding everything from parents for sure. I'm not. I just think that it seems, uh, I don't know. I'm just not also not in favor of maybe taking away the one safe space that a minority of kids Mm -hmm. have. Cause I totally understand that most families, it's not like that. Most families, you're going to love your kid no matter what that love is unconditional, but Mm -hmm. there it's just the scary, tiny, tiny minority of families where that's not the case that I worry for. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's revisit our top story. Uh, Today, federal ministers are voicing strong opposition to Alberta Premier Daniel Smith's proposed restrictions on transgender rights, arguing it will put youth at risk with one of the most aggressive policies of its kind in Canada. Federal Health Minister Mark Collins said he is deeply disturbed by the provincial plan announced by Premier Smith yesterday on the social media site X. Take a listen. When it comes to classroom instruction on subject matter involving gender identity, sexual orientation, or human sexuality, we will be requiring parental notification and an opt-in requirement for each instance a teacher intends to give formal instruction on these subjects. Furthermore, all third-party resource materials or presentations related to gender identity, sexual orientation, or human sexuality in our K-12 school system will need to be pre-approved by the Ministry of Education to ensure the materials are age-appropriate. For a minor, age 15 and under, the government will require parental notification and consent for a school to alter the name or pronouns of a child. For 16 and 17-year-olds who choose to alter their name or pronouns, parents do not need to give consent, but they must be notified. We know that nearly all parents, even those who may disagree with the decision of their children, will love and care for their children no matter what choices they make. However, in the handful of rare situations where one or both of the parents reject or become abusive to a child who identifies as transgender, we have child protection laws that will be strictly enforced. 
That was Premier Danielle Smith uh, speaking uh, yesterday. She spoke earlier today as well on the issue. Now, there are many organizations who uh, represent transgender, uh, the transgender community speaking out on this. Uh, and my colleague, Jerry Mira Judson, who joins us now, uh, spoke to some of them today. I did indeed. So I was looking on social media last night and there was a joint condemnation that came from two of these organizations. So it comes from Skipping Stones, which is a nonprofit in Alberta that connects trans and gender diverse youth with resources and support, and EGAL Canada, which is Canada's leading organization for 2SLGBTQ plus folks and issues. They do research, education, and legal advocacy. So they came together, they made this statement that I won't read in full. However, it says that uh, these measures announced run directly counter to expert guidance and evidence, violate constitutional rights of 2SLGBTQ plus people, and will lead to unimaginable harm and suffering. And then further down, they say that we are prepared to take legal action in cases of, you know, if these, you know, policies are enacted. Mm -hmm. So I did, I talked to representatives from each of these organizations and I I talked to first Amelia Newbert. She is the managing director for the Skipping Stones Foundation in Alberta. And I asked Amelia what her impression of Premier Smith's comments was. I think the word that's going around uh, the office here and going around the community is, is terrifying. I think there's a lot of anger. I think there's a lot of fear. I think the premier is playing politics to appease a portion of her base. And that playing politics is going to cost lives, going to cost the lives of trans and gender diverse folks. This joint condemnation with EGAL Canada, it, it was a pretty quick partnership and joint condemnation. So what was the process there with linking up and, and putting this out on social media? Well, for us, I think it was something that certainly got put on our radar and we're paying really close attention to from the second that at the UCP convention had talked about and, and had sort of passed motions around basically taking rights away from trans and gender diverse students in schools under the guise of sort of parental rights. And so we kind of were, had some red flags up expecting that uh, there might be an instance where Alberta followed Saskatchewan and, and New Brunswick in terms of enacting some of the policies. And we got a heads up, I think, in a sort of like offhanded comment by the premier on her uh, show on Friday that we could be expecting to see kind of policies released. And so we certainly had come together and it's certainly been something that we had been exploring for for a while, knowing that, you know, every sort of second matters with this, every second matters in terms of fighting to make sure that these policies aren't on the table or are challenged right away. And also sending a really clear message to our community that we're here and we're going to fight in every way possible and, and, and we're willing to go the distance. I also talked with Bennett Jensen. He's the director of legal at EGAL Canada, the other half of this joint condemnation. And I asked him about more of the legality of it. And he says without a doubt that these regulations, such as they are now, are unconstitutional. The, the policies violate the charter protections for predominantly gender diverse young people in slightly different ways, depending on the policy initiative that we're talking about. So in the in the context of the pronoun, parental consent requirements and parental notification requirements, we're litigating similar things in Saskatchewan and New Brunswick right now. And we're making arguments based on Section 7 um, and 15 of the Charter, which protects protect their right to equality and security of the person. And what that means is that we're saying 
that gender diverse young people are being targeted in a discriminatory matter by this male legislation in Saskatchewan and, and, and the same, a slightly worse uh, version is, is being proposed for Alberta and that they are being exposed to harm is the simplest way of understanding. And we have a, a ton of evidence to both support both of those arguments. In the context of gender affirming care, the denial of medically necessary, possibly life-saving health care for gender diverse young people is discriminatory. We have the, you know, the easy example of cosmetic surgeries for people under the age of 18 not being banned. So that means that a breast augmentation for a cisgender young person would be allowed, but a breast augmentation for a trans young person would be barred. That is on its face discriminatory and a violation of Section 15. So those are just a couple of examples. And yeah, I guess so. So we're kind of in a ready, set kind of stance until until things formally come down in writing, whether that is in the form of just regulations, whether that's in the form of a bill. Until we know that, we can't really know what legal recourse to choose, I guess. Exactly. The um, But I think the work right now is to really help people understand why these policies are harmful, focusing less on like the, the legal aspect of it. We'll figure out the, the constitutional challenge. We have a bunch of lawyers in, uh, engaged. But the real problem, I think, is that policies like this are able to be pursued because lots of folks in our society don't understand trans people and they don't understand trans young people and they don't understand why, like I said, why these things are harmful. So I think there's a lot of work for us all to do who are engaged in these issues to explain some of that, to help demystify trans identities and these policies and explain what the experts know and what the best practices are in each of these areas, because everything that is being proposed violates that expertise and evidence. Interesting comments there, uh, Jerry. Uh, Now let's just step away from Alberta for a second. In Saskatchewan, I mean, the conversation has been the minute you out children who are comfortable expressing their identity at school, but may feel unsafe at school, or sorry, at home uh, with their parents. Now, that was taken to the Saskatchewan Court of a King's Bench when Saskatchewan uh, brought in their rules. And in Saskatchewan, the government mandated that if a child wishes to use a different name or gender pronoun in schools, their parents will be required to give consent if the student is age 16 or under. Now, in Saskatchewan, the Court of King's Bench issued a temporary injunction against the school policy, saying it may cause irreparable harm to students. But Premier Scott Moe's Conservative government invoked the notwithstanding clause, which is a constitutional tool that allows provincial governments to continue with policies, even if they're found to violate rights. Now, could uh, Daniel Smith not do the same? She totally could. She, I, that's what I'm scared of is that notwithstanding clause. And especially I don't, I don't feel that it is being necessarily used because it's, it's pretty grave. So I, I mm-hmm. think that it's not necessarily being used with the appropriate gravity or for the issues that have the appropriate doesn't gravity. doesn't meet the moment in your mind. To me, it doesn't meet the moment. Mm-hmm. So, But she could. She absolutely could because now there's precedent that you can use that in that situation. And so, yeah, there is absolutely legal precedent. So that could be the case. Give me a call on the open line. I want to hear from you on this in regards to what Alberta is proposing in legislation. Saskatchewan has done some of it, but uh, by far, uh, Alberta's is goes a lot further. And in the case of Saskatchewan, as I said, they 
invoked an outstanding clause. But give me a call. Do you think we need to be doing the same uh, type uh, or introducing the same type of legislation here uh, in British Columbia for those age 15 and under? Parents will be notified and will be required to give consent to their children's new name or pronoun. For those 16 or 17, parents will be notified but will not be required to give consent. There's also um, uh, obviously legislation on transgendered people in sports. There's also going to be policies coming out in regards to sex ed. Uh, there's also a lot more uh, to be uh, said as well in regards to uh, puberty blockers. And in Alberta, they'll ban all top and bottom surgeries for those under the age of 18. Well, it's official. Better Call Saul hasn't won a single Emmy. The acclaimed Breaking Bad spinoff scored 53 Emmy nominations over its six-season run, but failed to win a single award last month. The final season was nominated for seven uh, Emmy awards uh, in 2023, including the top prize for Best Actor in a Drama Series and a Best Drama Series. Take a listen. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Hamlin, and I won't have it! What can we do for you, Jimmy? What Chuck did for this firm, one-third of this place belongs to him. If Chuck can call this an extended sabbatical, then so can we. You know I'm going to beat this. It's time to do right by him and cash him out. Hamlin's making you a chump! I'm going to get better! Chuck, I'm going under. Whose side are you on? Law offices of James McGill. How may I direct your call? The longer you stay here, the more explaining I have to do to Hamlin. It's going to be bad for you. Now, during its run, Breaking Bad won 16 Emmys, including two awards for Best Drama Series, but Saul couldn't compete with its predecessor's Emmy success. So how does a successful show with a six-year run not win an Emmy? Joining me now to discuss why Better Call Saul went zero, zero for 53 is our Mark Staling. He's CKNW's in-house movie expert and executive producer over at AM730. Mark, good to see you. Good afternoon, Jazz. Happy to be here. Uh, I wanted to have this conversation because we spend so much time uh, talking about award shows and, you know, award-winning shows, but there's so many shows that, you know, reach a certain audience and have been successful for a long time, uh, and one of them is Better Call Saul, and what's unique about it, in all its time, 53 nominations, no win. It's hard to believe. It's very, very hard to believe for a show... As good as Better Call Saul, which I think everybody agrees, it's, you know, it's a great show. Coming from the legacy of Breaking Bad, it already had an established name and striking out 53 times. And that's that's a record not just by a, a couple of nominations. I think it's over double. Yeah. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, you know, there's a few different things uh, that could play a role. I was, I was looking back at, you know, um, you know, other shows that have had, uh, you know, spinoffs and, you know, some successful, some not. Frasier, by the way, you know, that's like the king of the Emmys. It was a spinoff off of Cheers and it did great. Yeah. Um, it's luck of the draw. It's various things. I'm surprised it didn't win in the sense that, you know, often, you know, there's a it'll, it'll be a kind of a career achievement or you know it's they know the show's over and they'll they'll you know vote for it because they know it's going out it's it's had a great run um but why did it not win you know um it's 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 strange i you know it's it's hard to you know exactly put your finger on on you know why it would be but it didn't um and you know we're talking about it but we're talking about it if it had won a couple we aren't talking about it maybe it's you know it's not as much of a story i don't know how that you know that plays out but yeah, yeah. they they sometimes refer to the wire uh which is a great sort of a cop drama you got to see a perspective from the from the drug dealer or the cop or the journalist covering crime 
uh, one of the, the greatest shows ever. And I don't think that one won an award either. So do you think it's about the fact that perhaps shows that are more mainstream have a better chance and perhaps these are a bit just off the beaten path, a bit more esoteric? I guess so. There's that to play into it. Yeah, I mean, I agree that The Wire was, you know, wonderful. And, you know, some of these shows, I mean, it might be a bit of a badge of honor that they, you know, they didn't win. It's, you know, we were always underappreciated. We're the little guy or something along those lines. Um, you know, with with Better Call Saul, I mean, nominated for acting and this and that. It wasn't like, you know, and there's another thought would be, you know, maybe, you know, there's there's a lot of inside Hollywood stuff. You know, people don't like, you know, somebody on the sh- Bob Odenkirk is a very, very well-loved, you know, figure, yeah. you know, for years as a comedian and then into that. Um, and it had this Breaking Bad leg- legacy. Um, so it's... So it's peculiar. Um, it would have been nice for it to get, you know, this, you know, it's, it ends its run. It would have been nice for it, yeah. you know, to get it. Um, something you had mentioned to me off the air, which is, you know, one of my favorite moments and everybody, you know, uh, you know, thinks less of soap operas and things like that. But Susan Lucci was nominated 18 times (laughs) for Best Actress for All My Children, and she never won. And she did finally win 19 years in. And I watched the clip the other day, and... It was, it's powerful. It was, it was an amazing, amazing moment. She got the standing ovation, you know. I'm a softie. I mean, I was almost tearing up. It was so, you know, nice to, to see that and the joy. You know, these are always kind of human interest, you know, things. Yeah. But Breaking, uh, Better Call Saul, I mean, you know, didn't, uh, never, never got that uh, award. I guess it's the nature of the beast with TV, you know. It's season after season after season, so it could happen. The Oscars or something like that, you know, a movie comes out one year, it has its one chance, and then, you know, that's that. It's true. I mean, if I look at, you know, what people love this year, Succession, which is still viewed by very few people when you compare it to a broad mainstream audience. Great show uh, as well, but it does speak to probably the the New York and L.A. audiences rather than, let's say, Canadian or or Middle America, but a very good show. And I would say that's got nuance to it. They love that show, but somehow Better Call Saul, as I said, after 53 nominations, doesn't win anything. It, It does speak to either taste or the irrelevance of award shows. And I would actually go towards, lean towards the irrelevance of awards. No, I, I think that that's the case. I know I've kind of, I, they've lost their luster for me as I've aged. Maybe I'm just a cynic now or or whatever. And I've had my heart broken when I was younger, wanting certain things to win the Oscar or win the Emmy or, or whatever it happens to be. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's strange, uh, you know, how it's all, you know, played out the way it did. Do you think uh, part of the challenge now is that we don't have sort of the monoculture anymore? Like, you know, before you and I grew up, uh, certainly when I grew up, you know, it, you knew when a certain show was going to be on, it was going to be at this time, you might be able to VCR tape it. But generally you watched it when you watched it and your friends watched it and we had a collective community experience. Now you can find your niche and be there and be successful, but the awards don't necessarily come. And sometimes even mainstream acceptance doesn't come in a broad context in a broad way like it did once. I think the ratings certainly speak to that as far as television. Yeah. I mean, I know they, they adore their live programming because you have, you know, it's PVR proof, right? Yeah. Um, there's no more, I mean, you know, must-see TV in the 1990s. You know, NBC was a juggernaut. It was Thursday night. You were going to watch Friends, Seinfeld. You know, ER would come on after that, and those were those were juggernauts. Um, one thing that they've never done with these award shows, and I'm sure they will never do it because Hollywood want, would want to have their egos bruised, but the voting counts, you know. Yeah. Did, did, did Better Call Saul not win because it lost by three votes? 
you know? Yeah, that's true. Right? We have, we have yeah. no idea how this all plays out. And when, when it goes to a vote, you know, anything can happen. Donald Trump became the president of the United States. You know, you go to a vote and things... You know, it's not it's not 20 people going into a room and, you know, hashing it out and saying, OK, what's you know, what's going to win this year? No. You know, you go to the ballot and the, you a know, the politicking behind the scenes. Yeah, too, right? no, and exactly. It, yeah. And they talk about, you know, the campaign, the the awards campaign and, you know, the amount of money that is going into this, um, you know, to try and get these, you know, awards and the way it all unfolds, you know, behind the scenes is uh is interesting. I mean, yeah, popularity contest at times. You know, obviously that's part of it. But what, what it was, a, it was a great run for Better Call Saul, and the fact that we're talking about it says a lot about the quality of the show and many others that haven't won or didn't win, but we're still talking about them ten or twenty years later. Speaks to, I think, the ultimate reward, which is cultural relevance and impacting. Uh, what people have seen and really appreciate, that's for sure. And time is the ultimate judge, you know. Um, you know, if we're still talking about it 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, that'll be the true, you know, arbiter of, of greatness, I think, is, you know, where we are, you know, a few years from now. Are we still watching it, talking about it? Is it still relevant? And I think it will be, yeah. you know, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Mark, thank you. Thanks for having me. Within a few years, nearly 10,000 officers in our province, including more than 1,400 the Vancouver police, could be wearing body cameras. Police forces in BC are joining a growing trend across North America with the body cameras meant to respond to a call for more uh, police accountability and transparency and a belief that cameras will reduce the use of force by police and against police. Uh, they are in use in, in many places in Canada, including Toronto, Calgary, Edmonton and Saskatoon. Uh, Port Moody police with 52 officers. Uh, We'll be testing uh, those very, very the, those specific cameras. Surrey Police Service has already said that the, with 700 officers, once they hire um, the full contingent of officers, want to use the cameras. Victoria Police, which has 240 officers, wants to introduce the technology as well. Delta Police, which has 200 officers, already has used the video cameras in limited fashion and examining the uh, expansion. The City of Burnaby is even considering them for bylaw officers as well. Uh, now, but about a decade ago, police departments across the United States states began equipping their officers with body cameras as well. The technology is meant to serve as a window into potential police misconduct, but that transparency has often remained elusive. There was a big uh, article uh, written in the New York Times magazine over December in regards to the fact that uh, these body cameras haven't haven't always worked in favor for the public in regards to accountability. Joining me now to talk a little bit about body cameras is Rob Gordon, Professor Emeritus at the SFU School of Criminology. Professor Gordon, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Walk me through uh, your sense of how things have worked out in the United States uh, over the last decade when it comes to body cameras. Well, that's a difficult one, but generally speaking, uh, they appear to be favorably received by members of the population and indeed uh, the majority of police officers who've been using them. I think most of the police associations in the U.S. Uh, have been uh, happy with 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 body-worn cameras. Um, uh, so, you know, we've got to make sure, though, that uh, as we introduce them in Canada, uh, that we don't, uh, we, we don't ignore the fact that there are some peculiarities about Canadian policing which are not the same as, um, as you find in the United States. So uh, that's something, that's a, that's a caveat. When you, when you uh, say overall, pecu- though, I think the experience has been fairly fairly positive. When, when you we say just pecu- have to wait now to see what happens. I'm particularly interested 
to see uh, what happens in the Vancouver Police Department, mm-hmm. which, as you've pointed out, is experimenting um, with, with it. Uh, I mean, that's a very important step. You were saying peculiarity, peculiarities uh, here in the Canadian system. What did you mean by that? Well, there are a variety of um, racial uh, issues that we don't, uh, in the United States, that we don't get here to the same extent. There's also um, the whole issue of uh, police use of deadly force um, in, in the United States in comparison, comparison with Canada. So there, there's uh, those kinds of confounding factors. Uh, in addition, um, the I mean, one of the big issues here is uh, privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, privacy on the part of those who are being filmed uh, as opposed to those who are doing the filming. So there's some concern that, um, that uh, there are violations of privacy that can't be avoided because you can't you cannot in the middle of an interaction turn a camera on but give somebody a, a caution before you do that to the effect that you are turning it on so there's a whole bunch of of really practical problems that uh, may not be entirely helpful there's been some complaints in the united states where uh Folks have said that, uh, you know, not all of the footage is always made available. There's concerns as to how those that footage sometimes is edited. Uh, do you think that's a, a legitimate concern in your mind and one we should be worried about here? Uh, yes, in, the, in short, mm-hmm. except that we have um, a system here uh, of uh, independent investigation of, of police conduct. And so I think to some extent, um, once we get control of the uh, footage away from the police themselves and in the hands of the independent investigation office and its equivalent in other jurisdictions in Canada, we've been, we'll be in a more secure position. Um, yes, there's been a lot of concern about release, about the editorial process, the editing that goes on uh, of, of body-worn camera footage um, who, who holds on to it, where it goes once it's been uh, once it's been uh, handed in at the police station, um, and how secure it all is because it, it's quite important. Now, in addition, I don't think any um, prospect of this uh, really being used uh, as evidence in court is very likely in uh, in Canada. Um, there are some concerns already in the U.S. about whether or not um, the, the footage uh, can be used in a prosecution. Um, and it can be quite jumbled and difficult to sort out. So there's a, there's a whole layer of analysis that uh, we have yet to fully understand. Um, I've just been watching some live footage from a police department in the U.S. Uh, where it's explained uh, prior to the uh, footage being shown, what is going on, but it's a jumble. And for the, av- the average person, it's not going to be easy to discern what's happening. So, I mean, most people would say, wait a minute, the video is generally, hopefully, will show you what is happening. You're telling me that in many cases, this video wouldn't be used in court because because of context, that we can't provide a context to how um, certain images and what, what is happening in and around those images? Well, that's, that's part of it. It's, it's also whether or not it's admissible as evidence. 
um, because the it depends on exactly what the footage is. I mean, it's what they seem to be doing, and I think it's very interesting, and we'll see what they do in in, in, uh, in the VPD, is taking the footage from several officers' body-worn cameras and melding them together or showing them on split screens so that you can uh, get an appreciation from a couple of points of view. Um, but, of course, one of the big issues here is who's turning the camera on? They're not running continuously. Mm. Uh, who's turning the camera on? Who's turning it off? And what the policies are in relation to those uh, those factors, which are pretty important when it comes to determining whether the evidence uh, is helpful. But you're operating at two levels. One is the, the level of police discipline, and the other is the level of, uh, of, of prosecuting prosecutorial evidence and, and it's uh, the soundness of that evidence, whether you can uh, rely upon it. Um, and I, you know, frankly, wouldn't want to be a jury member trying to, trying to sort out uh, the images on these cameras, uh, not without some kind of, um, some kind of guidance. Uh, I was mentioning in the introduction that Burnaby is even considering it for bylaw officers. Do you think that that's okay, or do you think it just we shouldn't, you know, this shouldn't be expanded to other types of peace officers? Well, uh, that's that's a matter that needs to be dealt with at a provincial level. It's police standards, um, and these are very important standards in determining when when these things are used. I mean, bylaw officers be increasingly involved in in altercations and other events um, that are police in nature. And I think that um, we we need to have a good sound understanding of what's going on, what what we're going to expend the energy and money on, Mm -hmm. uh, and what we'll just let go by. Uh, If if we're talking about a variety of bylaw offences, like... uh, I try to struggling for the minute to think of one, but but possibly uh, parking fines and things like that. Um, that may be you know excessive use of this particular technology. Mm-hmm. It's expensive, and um, there are some storage issues, security and storage issues that have to be addressed very carefully before uh, we go too far with it. Now, I was mentioning that Delta uh, has been testing uh, these cameras, and you mentioned the Vancouver Police Department. Is the Vancouver Police Department and what they do and what they see and how this testing goes really going to be the, 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 the main sort of department they'll be looking at and moving forward in regards to how fast we move these cameras out? It'll really come down to what, what, uh, how this trial run uh, works for the VPD? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, it, it's a, a well-established police department, obviously, um, and has uh, a good reputation. And I think that the um, various uh, policy bodies are going to be looking at what they're doing. But this needs to be guided at a provincial level. We, we cannot do this uh, in a, a, a hodgepodge fashion. If you have... Um, if you have several police departments uh, operating, as we do in the Lower Mainland, mm-hmm. uh, w- with different policies on these issues, uh, it's going to get very complicated, and I think there'll be some failings. Uh, barring any massive changes in your mind, then this we should every police officer, a good chunk of our police forces in this province, will be wearing cameras in the next five years or so in your mind? 
That's not, it's more than my mind. It's actually, uh, I think it's policy. And uh, everything I read on the topic uh, would suggest that the provincial government's going to plow ahead with this, uh, with the cooperation of police boards and and so on throughout the province. And of course, the RCMP are on board with this as well. So uh, I, I don't think there's much to speculate about here. We need to, however... Uh, understand the full implications. Uh, there are civil liberties implications. Um, I understand the police are favorably disposed to this, so let's hear from them in terms of the benefits from their point of view. Mm-hmm. And um, if everything is uh, sounds, then okay, go ahead for a limited period of time. Well, uh, it's quite a big step. Uh, the steps have not always been smooth in the United States, and so we need to take a look at what's been going on there, uh, above and beyond uh, what was in the New York Times. Yes, but two different systems, but it's very interesting in regards to see uh, seeing what what they've uh, what they are witnessing after ten years and some of the challenges they have, and as we head in that direction as well. Uh, Professor Gordon, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. You're more than welcome. Thank you government is legislating a three-year delay to its controversial plan to expand eligibility for assisted dying to include those whose sole underlying condition is a mental illness. Now, Health Minister Mark Holland uh, introduced legislation this morning uh, that would postpone the change until March 17, 2027, just over six weeks before the expansion was scheduled to take effect. Nearly all provinces and territories asked the federal government for an indefinite pause on the expansion in a letter this week following the release of the committee report. Joining me now to talk about the issue is Alex Muir, Chair of Dying with Dignity Canada's Metro Vancouver chapter. Alex, thank you for joining us today. Good to be here. Your thoughts on the Liberal government uh, uh, tabling legislation to delay the expansion of MAID. Is this a question where you believe it is temporary, or do you think this is a government walking away because of the challenges before them? Um, I think by pushing it out so far, they are, they are basically walking away from it. Um, you know, if you, if you look at, at the evolution of this whole thing, um, back in 2021, under Bill C-7, they said, okay, we're going to offer this to people with mental disorders, but we need a couple of years to, to get everything, you know, uh, lined up and the, the processes in place. And then the 2023 deadline approached, and they said, no, we're not ready, pushed it out a year, and now they're pushing it out three more years. So we're talking, we're talking six years in total. And so you've got people out there who are living with treatment-resistant mental disorders who've been patiently waiting all this time. And so we share their frustration, um, you know, of the continued exclusion and stigmatization uh, based on a diagnosis, which, by the way, is a clear breach of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And I think that's why the government's not clearly saying they're blocking it, because they know that it's unconstitutional. So they, what they do instead is they just push it down the road. Hmm. Uh, what would you say to Canadians who are listening to us uh, that are hesitant uh, in regards to heading in this direction as a country? Well, I think, I think part of the challenge is getting people to understand who is specifically targeted with this legislation. The vast majority of people with mental disorders will not qualify for me. It's, there's, we think it's going to be a very small number of people that will qualify and that's what we've seen in other countries that have this. Um, Belgium has had, uh, you know, access to assisted dying 
people with what they call psychiatric uh, disorders since 2002. And in a 20-year period, only 1.4% uh, of the total number of those cases were due to um, psychiatric disorders. So, you know, we think it's going to be a very small number here as well. So it's people that have been suffering for years or decades, who've tried all the, all the recommended treatments, nothing's, nothing's worked for them. And so to say to them, um, you, know, you, you know, we just haven't found the right solution for you, we think is cruel. And so they should be allowed at some point to say, um, I've had enough. Mm -hmm. Do you think you have public opinion on your side? I think of when MAID was originally introduced, um, there was a lot of controversy around it, conversation, um, and, and things have moved forward since then. Uh, but do you think partially this is about uh, the public sentiment or perhaps a lack of discourse, discussion, education with the Canadian public on, regarding this particular piece of legislation? I think that's part of the problem. I mean, you read, like, for example, you, read, you, you hear the statistics saying only 38% of Canadians support this, but what that was based on was a survey that was done last year commissioned by CARDIS, which is a Christian think tank, and the question posed to Canadians was, you know, do you think that assisted dying should be available to people with mental disorders? And the answer, you know, was low, and, you know, with no context provided, and I think if I were asked that question, not knowing the actual made legislation, I would also say no, because because most people with mental disorders um, should not qualify and will not qualify. Um, but when when you survey the survey that we did through Ipsos last year, said should it be available to people with what I just described, people who have been suffering for a long time, they've tried the treatments, and nothing has worked. Um, Eighty percent of Canadians said yes, those people should. And so it's really important how you ask the question. And I think that's part, that's the problem here, is I think there's a lack of understanding on who the legislation is actually aimed at. And, and, it, and that, it doesn't help, though, when you've got, uh, you get politics in the way of it as well. And, and, then, and then the media also doesn't, you know, don't, a lot of media, they don't understand it either. And so the, the right information doesn't get out there for people to really understand what's behind the legislation. Uh, Justice Minister Arif Farani said that the, obviously health care is a, a provincial responsibility, as we know, uh, but he has stated that the province have provinces have indicated they are not prepared to proceed um, and they were trying to be prudent as a federal government uh, to, to delay this. What do you say to that, uh, that argument? Well, I mean, this, this comes from, it comes back to the, the, um, the report that was issued by the Parliamentary Subcommittee. So they were reconvened in October and said, are we ready? So they called in uh, 21 witnesses, and of those 21 witnesses, only 15 had knowledge of, you know, were qualified to say whether or not the system was ready. And, and 12 of the 15 said, yes, we are ready. But what, what, the, what the report focused on instead were, were this dissenting views and also all the other issues that are out there. And specifically, and this is in the report, they talk about ongoing concerns which is, um, you know, assessing irremediability. So psychiatrists are, are hugely divided on this. A lot of psychiatrists think that you can never say that a mental disorder is irremediable. There is a solution out there. Although we think it's, it's unfair to apply that to people who've already tried all the treatments that have been recommended. And then there's the issue about distinguishing suicidality from an actual request. So all, all these issues 
kind of get are, are kind of driving a lot of, of this deferral. And it was interesting. I um, I was watching a doctor uh, on the news this morning. They were asking him his thoughts on this deferral, and he said uh, uh, he, it was a good idea deferring. We're not ready. But, and then they asked him point blank. They said, "Do you think Canada will ever be ready?" And he said, "No." So. So that, I think, is what is driving a lot of this, is that there's a lot of unease in the medical system about whether this should be offered at all, and that is what's, and so it's not really a, it's not really a readiness issue. It's whether or not they're willing to address some of these, um, you know, some of these issues that are quite contentious and which have become quite political. Uh, so what does this mean for you and your organization? Is this now uh, a new uh, new campaign for you to educate the public, to lobby government? What, 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 what do you think are the next steps for, for those who want to see this implemented? Yes, we'll, con- we'll continue to lobby and educate. Um, I, you know, I will not be surprised if we see a court challenge. Now, now, now that the government has pushed it out so far, um, th- I think that that's, Someone will come forward and say this just isn't right, and there'll be a constitutional challenge. And uh, I'm I'm hoping if that happens that um, that that we would support it. But that's really a decision for our board of directors if that happens. Alex, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.